So then, those who, were rece- who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who were, uh, had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and their possessions and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking of bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, in response to the death of George Floyd and the riots that followed, a number of politicians and advocacy groups began to call for the defunding of police departments. The logic in their thinking went something like this. Police are not the answer to the problem. The police are the problem. If we were to shrink the size of police departments and reallocate the money we save to community organizations and social programs, well, the problem of crime would largely go away. In essence, what they're arguing is less cops would mean less crime. So city councils, like that of Minneapolis where George Floyd died, pledged to cut budgets and end policing as we know it. What happened? Well, Were they able to go forward with a plan? No. Crime began to spike in Minneapolis. Assault rates are now twice the national average. Same for rape. The murder rate is three times the average, as is theft. Robbery is four times the average. Businesses started to close up and move out of the city, and a number of shops have uh, been shut down. Loud cries to defund the police are now being muted by the cries of the city's residents calling for more police protection. Well, since defund the police has now become a uh, unpopular campaign slogan, those pushing in this movement have come up with a new way of framing it. What they say is needed now is to reimagine policing. Cops with guns arresting bad guys? That's old and outdated and oppressive. We need to rethink and reimagine the whole approach to policing and community protection. In an article that I read from the American Civil Liberties Union, they came up with some policy suggestions they thought might help. Uh, here's one. Enfor- our end enforcement of minor offenses that drive street-level harassment. Repeal laws that criminalize behavior and pass laws that legalize activity like the possession and distribution of marijuana. Or this one. No more police officers in school. Evidently, they believe the students would be safer without police protection. Develop mobile crisis services, peer crisis services, crisis hotlines and warm lines where people can call when they just need someone to talk to who understands what it's like to live with mental health problems, to support people who have behavioral and mental health crises. Can you imagine how that would work? This is 911 Crisis Center. How can I help you? Yeah, I'm planning on robbing a liquor store this afternoon, and if it doesn't go smoothly, I'm going to shoot the clerk. And I was just hoping you could help me sort through some of my feelings and maybe give me some practical advice on how to pull off the robbery successfully. Of course, they start with the assumption that people commit crimes because of mental illness. Very few people who are mentally ill commit crimes. I've heard people complain that the problem is when the police shoot, they shoot to kill. I mean, why can't they shoot them in the legs and just wound them? Or better yet, do like they did in the cowboy movies, shoot the gun out of their hand. In a number of cities, they've done away with bail requirements. So when a person's arrested, they're released on the same day. 
California changed the law against shoplifting. Used to be a felony, but now, as long as you steal less than $1,000 worth of merchandise, it's only a misdemeanor. Walmart just closed their last two stores in Portland, Oregon. The high level of shoplifting made it unprofitable for the stores to stay open. Now, how's that re-imaging project going? Well, not so well. You know, the truth is you can tinker around the edges, but you cannot fundamentally change the work of policing. The criminal justice system is designed to protect those who live within the law and to punish those who live outside the law. To completely reimagine policing would destroy it. You know, though, over the last 40 years, there's been a lot of people who suggested that we need to reimagine the church. People gathering together Sunday morning to sing old hymns and listen to a pastor stand up and preach a sermon from the Bible. That's so yesterday. What we need is a new approach. Instead of boring sermons, how about an uplifting pep talk? Instead of addressing subjects like sin and salvation, why not talk about things that people are interested in, like how to have a better marriage or raise your self-esteem or how to reduce stress in your life? And prayer meetings? I mean, who's going to go to those? You draw more women with a yoga class and more guys with the softball league. And so what do we have in our churches today? Well, they've largely become entertainment centers where people can come hear a 45-minute rock concert, including a light show on a fog machine. Then the pastor comes out with jeans and a t-shirt. He sits down on a stool, opens up his laptop, and then gives a relevant message with lots of personal stories and showing various clips from movies to illustrate his point. The Sunday school has fun activities for the kids, and if the parents don't want to go themselves, they can sit in the coffee shop and sip on their espresso until the kids are done. Folks, listen. We do not have to reimagine the church. We simply have to do the things that Christ calls us to do so that we can become the church he wants us to be. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we were together, we began to consider this first church in Jerusalem, which I argued can function as a model church. We zeroed in on just one verse, 42, which mentions four ongoing activities that were vital to the church. Now this week, we wanna, uh, I want to re-emphasize two of those activities and then go on to see what else characterized this first church. So to enable you to evaluate our own church and to help you know when you're looking for a church what you should be looking for, we want to consider this passage today. So why don't we get into the text after we pray. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us as we see what's in the verses today for us, that we might apply it and be the church that pleases Jesus Christ, your Son. Bless us now, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, there's uh, four things that we see uh, characterize this early church. The first thing was their ongoing activities. That's your first point. And that's found in verse 41 to 42. Now, by the way, given a choice, would you rather go to a large church or a small church? Large churches have advantages that small don't, and small have advantages that large don't. I mean, if you go to a large church, they can offer more resources and uh, can offer more programs. Pastors tend to be better speakers because successful pastors go on to bigger churches. Quality of the music is usually better. In a big city church, you might have professional musicians involved in the worship team, and the music ministry is headed by someone who is a paid staff member. On the other hand, in a small church, everybody knows your name. And so the relationships are not just casual ones. And since uh, there's not a lot of money to hire multiple staff, everyone has to be involved, and it's more likely that you're going to buy into the ministry and the vision of the church if you and yourself are part of it. Of course, uh, I read somewhere that, what did they say, in American churches, 65% of all American churches have an attendance of less than 100. 
So there's a whole lot more small churches than there are large ones. Now, this first church was not a small church, though. This was a very large church. Look what it says again in verse 40, uh, 41. It says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized that day, and they were added about 3,000 souls. And what was the ongoing activities that these new believers were engaged in? It says in verse 42, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, we consider each of those at length the last time we were together, but I just want to emphasize two of them in particular as we go on. That's the apostles' teaching, and prayer. Now, by the apostles' teaching, Luke means those truths taught to the first Christians regarding who Jesus was and what he had accomplished. Now, since they were from a Jewish background, he certainly would have used the Old Testament to show all the ways that Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, fulfilled the requirements of being the Messiah. They also would have imparted Jesus' ethical teachings, like those found in the Sermon of the Mount. Well, today, the apostles' teachings are found in the New Testament. The 26 books of the New Testament, along with the 44 in the Old Testament, make up the Bible, which is the textbook for the church. Now, every now and then I get someone who will tell me, oh, I joined a Bible study. I said, oh, that's great. What book are you going to be studying? Oh, we're going to be studying The Purpose Driven Life. Or we're going to be studying Wild at Heart. And I have to remind them, it's only a Bible study if you study the Bible. Writing to Timothy, who he left in charge at Ephesus, Paul said this, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Paul sounded that trumpet call to preach the word and teach God's word throughout his life. In fact, one of the very last things he wrote before he was beheaded by Nero was this. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickle, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. You know, if you're in a church where the pastor is not accurately and systematically preaching through the scripture, you need to sit down with him and ask him, why? Why aren't you teaching us the word of God? And if he brushes you off or gets offended, you need to find another church. Because your pastor has no right to reimagine the church into something that Jesus never intended for it to be. Pastors need to preach the word so that the people can continually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And if there's little or no regularly scheduled prayer times in your church, they're not following a model that has been laid out in the scripture. Prayer and the ministry of the word, these are the top two priorities of a church. That brings us to our second point, though. Second thing that characterizes this church. It had an electric atmosphere. This is verse 43. By the way, the Collins Dictionary says that the phrase electric atmosphere speaks of a time or a place where the people are in a state of great excitement. Now think of some of those young girls at a Beatles uh, concert in the 60s. What happened when the young lads strummed their guitars and said, help, I need somebody, help, not just anybody, help, you know I need somebody, help. Well, they went crazy, shaking their heads, fainting, they had to carry them out. They called the phenomena Beatle mania. The other image that comes to my mind, though, is a science museum where they have that metal ball that you put your hand on and produces electricity, static electricity, so the hair goes straight up. 
By the way, do you know what the name of that ball is? It's called a Van der Graaff generator. Now, I don't think the early Christians had their hair standing on edge. I don't think it's likely that they were being taken out screaming. But it certainly was an electric atmosphere because we read in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, Jesus performed miracles and he empowered his apostles to do the same. And as you go through the book of Acts, you'll find that they heal lame man one time. They raise another person from the dead. In Acts 5.16, it says this, Also, the people from the city in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. That's pretty exciting stuff. Does that mean we should expect to see the same in our churches today? Some faith healers claim that they're able to cure people on command. One guy I went to school with, Gabe Woods, he was confined to a wheelchair. He would always go to these healing ministry crusades, but he said they never would let him sit up in front in his wheelchair. I wonder why. Now, unlike many faith healers today, the apostles performed verifiable miracles, not only to help people, but also as an authentication of their apostolic ministry. I do believe that God answers prayers and that he can and still does at times bring miraculous healing, but I think the era of working of miracles is a gift uh, ended with the apostles. Well, there's no doubt there was exciting times in that church. The modern church may not be able to reproduce those wonders and signs, but we can have an electric atmosphere as we worship together and celebrate all the great things that God has done in our lives and the lives of others. Next thing I want you to see, though, is their sacrificial love. Their sacrificial love. And this is 44 to 45. It says, And all those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as any might have need. Now, this is the passage that the socialists love to point to to justify their ideology. Karl Marx uh, was not the first thinker to put forth the idea of communism. Communism is an economic system where the means of production, for instance, farms and factories and etc., are owned by the whole community and private property is uh, abolished or at least severely restricted. There have been a number of so-called Christian communist experiments. The Plymouth Colony was established in uh, 1620 in Massachusetts. William Bradford founded it and was later its governor. The original colony had written into its charter um, a system of communal property and division of labor. It was going to be from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. You know, all for one and one for all, share and share alike. Well, the Forbes article I read on this one said this. As William Bradford recorded in his of plantation, uh, Plymouth Plantation, this is a book he wrote about it later, the people who had formerly been known for their virtue and hard work became lazy and unproductive. Resources were squandered, vegetables were allowed to rot in the ground, and mass starvation resulted. And where there's starvation, there's plague. After two and a half years, the leaders of the colony decided to abandon their socialist mandate and create a system of honored private property. The colony survived and thrived, and the abundance which resulted was celebrated in Thanksgiving feast. That's where it started. Now, other socialist societies went before and have come after, but they always end the same, with squabbling, division, indolence, lowered productivity, and increased poverty. And by the way, that's what they're trying to bring into our country today. Now, a couple of things that have to be said about this early church arrangement. First of all, it was voluntary. It was voluntary. When the Bolsheviks took over in Russia and China, it came by the force 
of the barrel of a gun. Stalin starved five million Ukrainians into submission. And under China's Chairman Mao, some 40 to 80 millions died by starvation, imprisonment, and mass executions. And I, I can guarantee if you went to a public school, you never learned about that, did you? You'll learn about six million Jews dying, which you should, but why wouldn't they teach you about 80 million people dying in China? Because the worldview that's being taught here is the same one that the Chinese held. Second thing has to be said, though, it was motivated by love for God and fellow believers. I mean, the communists are motivated by lust for power and greed. Third thing, it appears to have been a temporary arrangement. I mean, you don't read about other churches engaging in the same practice, nor in the epistles do you ever find the apostles demanding that all Christians divide up their wealth equally. Indeed, Paul was quite concerned that there not be any freeloaders in the church. Writing to the Thessalonians, he says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-13. to He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teachings that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not uh, be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we didn't have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work, neither shall he eat. We hear some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down, earn their own bread. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what's good. Now, all that being said as a caveat, it's still true that Christians are supposed to show self-sacrificing love to others, especially to other believers. Around here, that might mean helping someone when they're cutting wood, fix their car, watch their kids at times. I'm sure you can think of dozens of ways that you can be a blessing to others. The Bible says we're to do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of faith. You know, one of the early critics of the church, a Roman critic, mocked him for all kinds of things. But he ended by saying, but oh, how they love one another. Jesus said one of the things that would mark the last days is that the love of many would grow cold. There would just be a callousness of people towards each other. He said even family love would disappear. We're seeing that, aren't we? It's going to be important in the coming years as the culture implodes that the church shows itself as people who give self-sacrificing love for the benefit of others. Well, the last thing that characterized this model church was their exuberant joy. And that's found in verses 46 to 47. Now, C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with that author, he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia along with a number of other things. He was actually at one time a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. He wrote about how he came to faith in a book entitled Surprised by Joy. And Lewis was surprised because he assumed that if he became a Christian, it would actually decrease his happiness. I mean, doesn't everybody know that being a Christian is a glum, drag, boring way of life? Yeah, that's what a lot of non-Christians think. That if they become a follower of Jesus, they're going to have to give up all the things they take pleasure in. Well, yeah, if what you take pleasure in is sin, but aren't the pleasures of sin all fleeting and unsatisfying? By the way, what's the difference between happiness and joy? Well, happiness depends on what's happening in your life, your circumstances. 
If they're pleasant, positive things, fun things, delightful things, well, then your happiness is maintained. But when hard things, painful things, distasteful things come into your life, which they inevitably will, then your happiness evaporates like a pool of water in the desert heat. Joy, on the other hand, is not dependent on outward circumstances, but is generated from within. And for the Christian, it comes from knowing that we've been reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross as the payment for our sins. And since we've been granted eternal life as a free gift of God's grace, we don't fear death and we have confidence in life, counting, counting on promises like the one found in Romans 8.28 that says, For we know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He told his disciples, I want my joy to be in you and I want your joy to be full. Now these early Christians experienced just that. For we read in verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying favor with all the people. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun of love. Melt the clouds of sin and darkness, drive the dark of doubt away, giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. The experience of joy found expression in praise to God and worship. I mean, does that make sense, though, if we were created by God, for God, that we would find our highest joy in God? And yet, how many people are trying to find their joy in everything and anything but God? Psalm 1611 says this, You will make me know the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, don't you want to experience deep, soul-satisfying joy? I mean, not for a moment, but forever. That's what God offers all men in reconciling sinners like us to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is this. Don't cheat yourself out of this treasure of treasures. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Those 3,000 people were saved at Pentecost did just that, and evidently they shared their joy with others because they were giving the gospel, because we read in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here's what I'm saying. We don't need to reimagine the church. We just need to be the church. The followers of Jesus Christ who lean on, learn his word, who give ourselves to prayer, who love others sacrificially and proclaim the good news to those around us. If the church will do that, we will grow in time in numbers and even more importantly, in depth. May God give us the grace and may you be part of that because it's going to fill you with lots of joy. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we do all want to have joy. Even Jesus himself, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. Every person without exception does what they do in order to further their own happiness and joy. And that's even true for you as our creator. The reason you redeem people is because it brings great joy to you. The reason your son went to the cross is because it would bring honor to you, Father, 
and joy to him. And the reason we share the gospel, Lord, is because we want others to experience the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you give us many opportunities. I pray that you'd call people through the gospel message, and I pray that we would always find our great delight in you through your son, Jesus, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.